The following sermon is from Redemption Bible Church of New Braunfels, where we are proclaiming the authority of God's Word without apology, in order to fulfill the Great Commission in the spirit of the Great Commandment. Let's do so. Turn in your copy of God's Word now to Exodus 11. Exodus 11, we're continuing on our series, God of Glory, through Exodus. And so again, if it's your first time or you're joining us online, welcome. Um, We are making our way through this uh, great and glorious book and... uh, It has been a journey so far, has it not, church? That's right, and there's much more to come. Now, as you're opening your Bibles and turning there, let me just ask you this question. If you were to turn to the person on your left and ask them to describe you, what do you think they would say? What character qualities would they uh, highlight? What attributes would they say adequately define you? And maybe you're thinking, I don't know the person on my left, and so all those things are unknown. Well, let me ask then this question, maybe even more important today. If you were to lean to the other person on the other side of you and ask them to describe God, what do you think they would say about God? What character qualities would they highlight? What attributes would rise to the surface as definitive? And how do we know God? You know, a theologian of the past, A.W. Tozer, in his book, The Knowledge of the Holy, began with this premise that what comes to mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us. And as we've been in the book of Exodus, then this is the story of not only how God delivered the Israelites out from under the oppressive hand of the Egyptians and into then his presence into the promised land as a distinct nation. But through it all, Exodus is a revelation of the character of God. That from the time of the burning bush where he made his name known, I am who I am, or Yahweh, his personal covenant name, and from there on, he has interacted with Moses and the people there. He has made known his presence and his promises and his power. The plagues themselves, as we learned last week, were uh, for the very purpose to make this worldwide proclamation that God exists. God is who he says he is, and through his work then of deliverance, God's character has been made known. And since the time here of Exodus, and even beforehand, since uh, all humanity was created, and ever since then, God has been building his reputation And every day that goes by is another day adding to the body of evidence that God is who he says he is. The longer we go in humanity, the longer that our world exists, the more and more God is building his reputation. And while we've learned much about the character of God, especially last week as we looked at those first nine plagues or judgment. We have one attribute in particular to focus on today and the final judgment. The tenth and final, the most severe. It'll be the most devastating in terms of the pain that it would cause. Not a household will be unaffected by this, we're told. But in the same way, it will also be the most glorious in terms of the praise that it will produce. See, here's the purpose of this 10th and final judgment of God to, uh, for the deliverance of the Israelites. The, final, the purpose of this final plague then is the proclamation, the worldwide proclamation of God's mercy. 
of God's mercy towards his people, underlying all the strange practices that we'll read, underlying all the interactions between the Lord and Moses and Moses and Pharaoh and the Moses and the people, underlying all of this is the mercy of God. And simply to find mercy is the withholding of judgment that is justly due to someone. It is the withholding of consequences. It is the withholding of punishment that is due. And I would submit to you this morning that there is really nothing more important for you to understand today than the mercy of God. For it is central to his character. It is central to the story of Exodus and God's dealings with the people here. And it is central to the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is central to our deliverance from sin. It is central to us knowing the steadfast love of God. And it is so important that here's our first point. It is so important that God pre-planned all the details beforehand. God planned all the details beforehand. And to see this, let's jump in to our text today and read chapter 11. Join me with me in your copy of God's word as I read Exodus 11. It says this, The Lord said to Moses, Yet one more plague will I bring upon Pharaoh and upon Egypt. Afterward, he will let you go from here. And when he lets you go, he will drive you away completely. Speak now in the hearing of the people that they ask every man of his neighbor and every woman of her neighbor for silver and gold jewelry. And the Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. Moreover, the man Moses was very great in the land of Egypt, in the sight of Pharaoh's servants, and in the sight of the people. So Moses said, Thus says the Lord, About midnight I will go out in the midst of Egypt, and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die. From the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the handmill, and all the firstborn of the cattle. There shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as there has never been nor ever will be again. But not a dog shall growl against any of the people of Israel, either man or beast, that you may know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. And all these your servants shall come down to me and bow down to me, saying, Get out! you and all the people who follow you. And after that, I will go out. And he went out from Pharaoh in hot anger. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh will not listen to you that my wonders may be multiplied in the land of Egypt. Moses and Aaron did all these wonders before Pharaoh and the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart and he did not let the people of Israel go out of his land. This is God's word for God's people. Now, as we read this chapter, and if you remember back to what we've seen in the first nine judgments, you begin to see the seven lessons that we learned last week on display here of God's unrelenting mercy, of God's uh, striking down our all idols. You begin to see God at work here. Now, this is the last interaction between Moses and Aaron and Pharaoh. As they are there, just as Moses says, you'll not see my face again, he warns him, he warns Pharaoh of what is yet to come. I love it here, really, how the Lord points out everything that he told them would happen. And as we've been working our way through Exodus, there's been this revelation. God has told them exactly what to do and how it will happen. He's laid out the promises, though both there specifically and even going back to his promises made generations before these guys came on the scene. But here specifically, as we get into chapter 11 here, we can't miss that everything that God has set up to this point. Remember, he's told him that Pharaoh will harden his heart, but God would show his strong arm so much so that, that Pharaoh would drive them out. 
kick them out, thrust them out. What would be impossible will happen. That the Egyptians would pay them to leave. That as they are going in fear, because of the, the fear of the devastation, because they have felt the impact of these judgments, that they would pay them to go. And maybe most impossible of all is what we see there in verse 3, is that Moses would be seen as a great man. And why is that significant? Well, understanding what they thought of Pharaoh. Pharaoh himself being divine, that Moses would be viewed even higher than Pharaoh. And Pharaoh's son, here the one who was revered among the servants of Egypt, amongst the people of Egypt, now Moses will be viewed even higher. This obscure Hebrew, this man who comes from the slaves among them, would now be raised up, lifted up, and seen as a great, great man. Just as it all was preplanned, is now coming and unfolding exactly as God had said. Moses lays out the plan here. He lays out what was required for their deliverance. He tells them what would happen in the final plague, what God himself would do to set them free, showing no partiality to the rich and to the poor, only towards those who are of Israel, only of those who would spread this blood over their doors. He would show not partiality, you see, to even to Pharaoh, the highest in the land, to the lowest slave who grinds grain at the mill. He would show only distinction to the Israelites, so much so than to show the severity of the judgment and also the glorious nature of the blessings here that not even a dog would bark, not even a dark dog would lift its voice against the people of Israel, such would be the encompassing glorious blessing of God upon his people. And even as Moses tells this to Pharaoh, his heart was hard. Though he has been warned, he yet will not relent, as we've been told all along. And what we are learning very vividly in these judgments, what we are learning and beginning to see through all of this is the pre-planning nature of God. How, what we often call his sovereignty. God knows that the people need an exodus. He knows their enslavement. He knows our own enslavement to sin. And what is becoming more clear are the worldwide implications of what God is doing among these people. See, God's mercy wasn't just a unique event here. It wasn't a singular instance or a unique demonstration of his character. As we go through the pages of Scripture, beginning in Genesis and now here in Exodus, and as we flip through our Bible and we see story after story, we see the glorious mercy of God. God wasn't just showing off on a first date like a boyfriend might do, and taking out a girl he's trying to woo, pulling out all the stops and going head over heels, planning everything out in a singular event. No mercy is a defining part, a defining characteristic of God and not some whimsical fancy that he decides to show when he needs something from these people. And when we pair the mercy of God with the sovereignty of God, he is pre-planning to show his mercy before the foundations of the world. In the same way, for us, whom are his beloved 
God chose before the foundation of the world. He pre-planned to show you his mercy. He made a distinction and chose you, orchestrating all the events, putting those people in your life, bringing these uh, scriptures to mind, driving you by this sign or whatever it would take to bring you out from the deliverance of your sin. This was no accident, but rather the unrelenting mercy of God coming after you, bringing you to that life-transforming event of salvation, bringing you to this significant event in your life, an event so important that it rearranged the very way in which you see your life, which is exactly what we begin to see as we continue on into chapter 12, that this event, God's mercy being shown to the Israelites is an event so important that here's our second point. God rearranged the calendar. God rearranged the calendar. Look here at chapter 12, verse 1, and follow along as I read this first section. It says this, The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the 10th day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons. According to what each can eat, you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the 14th day of this month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. They shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted, its head with its legs and its inner parts, and you shall let none of it remain until the morning." Anything that remains until the morning you shall burn, and in this manner you shall eat it with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover, for I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt. I will execute judgments. I am the Lord." The blood shall be assigned for you on the houses where you are, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. Now, this is God's word for God's people. Can you imagine with me for a moment how cataclysmic an event it would take for our nation to entirely rearrange the calendar? Yeah, we celebrate July 4th, right, as a significant event in our uh, nation's history. It memorializes what happened that day as our forefathers declared independence, but it did not completely rearrange the calendar such that July would be the first month of our nation. And yet the Lord's Passover, this great and glorious act of mercy, would forever alter the Jewish religious calendar. That month was then known as Abib, which would later be changed to its name to Nisan. Our months of March, April-ish would now be the beginning of their calendar. An event so cataclysmic, an event so life-changing, much in the same way that we as believers, we mark our life before Christ, right? B.C. and after Christ, designating the time in our life of here's who I was before Christ. But that event when we were delivered from our sin, when we came to faith in Jesus Christ and now our life afterwards. 
It's in much the same way that Christ, even as he resurrected, uh, our weekly calendar changed, where we come to worship on the first day of the week, where we give the Lord the best of our time, talent, and treasures on the first day, not saving just the leftovers for him, but giving to him on the first day of the week. And this event is so important, it changes the calendar, and it is uh, that Moses and Aaron then are instructed to tell the whole congregation of Israel in verse 3. And it's easy just to look over that verse, but it is significant here. It's the first time that this word, this idea of the congregation of Israel is used to signify them as a nation. Where up until this point, they were a people group just known as the Israelites or the Hebrews, but now God sees them as a distinct nation. And this first Passover would mark the birthday of this nation. In a similar way as we as a church here mark October 1st, 2017 as our first, our birthday as a church, which was our first public worship service as a congregation, as a church. And here at this first time, uh, the significance of the events, God lays out instructions for what they're to eat and what they're to do. And so, yes, strange a little bit, but each thing has some significance. They're to eat the bitter herbs as a reminder, as the pungent uh, nature and the aromas of these herbs were to remind them of the bitterness of their oppression, the bitterness of their enslavement, and much for us, the bitterness of the sin which we found ourselves in. The unleavened bread was not just because they wanted a dense, hard, crunchy bread, but as the reminder of the haste in which they left the land of Egypt, their urgent departure. Whereas leaven would take time to let the dough rise. I'm learning all this stuff. We have dough rising in my refrigerator and on my countertop at home. But it infects the whole thing. And they were to unleaven their bread as both a reminder there and for us as we remember our fleeing from sin. The roasted lamb was significant. It wasn't to be eaten raw or boiled like unbelievers, like the nations around them, but eaten in its entirety and gotten rid of what they could not eat. They're told what to do. They're to be dressed, ready to go. Staff in hand, sandals on their feet, ready to move, not comfortable and hospitable, not there to pass the night away in conversation over a long meal, but they, for this first Passover, are ready to go. They're to spread the blood with a hyssop bush over their doorposts. I considered doing that this week of like taking some red paint or something, putting it over the door frame out there as we came in, but that might be a little weird. If you're a guest with us today, maybe that would like you'd have turned right around if you'd saw something like that. So we didn't do it, but this is what was happening then. See, these were the requirements for deliverance, the shedding of blood. And what would be here, the death blow of deliverance over all the gods of Egypt. What we saw last week in each of the judgments is God specifically attacking, declaring war on the Egyptian gods of that day, this final one would be on the gods of Egypt as they struck down the firstborn, these who they believed were the sons of God, divine in nature. God would exercise his judgment, showing that he alone is God. Not only those with the blood upon their doors who believed that he was indeed who he says he is would mercifully be passed over. And not only is this event so important that it would change the calendar, but God would also establish a holiday because of it. Here's our third point as we continue on, that God establishes a holiday to show the importance of it. Join me in verse 14 of Exodus chapter 12. Let's continue reading this next section. 
This day shall be for you a memorial day, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations, as a statute forever. You shall keep it as a feast. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall remove leaven out of your houses. For if anyone eats what is leavened from the first day until the seventh day, that person shall be cut off from Israel. On the first day you shall hold a holy assembly. On the seventh day a holy assembly. No work shall be done on those days. But what everyone needs to eat, that alone may be prepared by you. And you shall observe the feast of unleavened bread. For on this very day I brought your hosts out of the land of Egypt. Therefore, you shall observe this day throughout your generations as a statute forever. In the first month from the 14th day of the month at evening, you shall eat unleavened bread until the 21st day of the month at evening. For seven days, no leaven is to be found in your houses. If anyone eats what is leavened, that person will be cut off from the congregation of Israel, whether he is a sojourner or a native of the land. You shall eat nothing leavened in all your dwelling places. You shall eat unleavened bread. Now, this is God's word for God's people. Now, let me ask this. What, what are holidays for? Vacation day, right? Extra day off work? Well, kind of, yeah. Holidays are designed so that the significant days aren't forgotten. And the Passover is so significant here that not only would there be a Passover day, but that was followed by a week-long festival. That sounds awesome. And again, the instructions are, uh, are given here. What they are to eat, unleavened bread, and what they are to do, or in this case, not to do. No work. They get to worship a holy assembly on the first and the seventh day, but no work to be done. And this kind of sounds like a vacation, right? I mean, some of you are thinking like, man, food, all we can eat is food that takes no time to prepare, like fast food, maybe in our case, and no work for seven days. I mean, sign me up for that, right? I want a week-long vacation. Let's get this in, into our rhythms of our national character, or our national calendar, rather. What's so interesting to me about this is that God establishes the holiday, the celebration of it, before it even happens. Did you catch that here? Like the, the event, the Passover has not even happened yet, and God is instructing them through Moses of the significance of what is about to happen. They haven't experienced it yet, and God is telling them how important it is that they would do no work to be delivered to receive this mercy, and they would do no work while they remember that they did no work to receive it. And we do well to remember this as well as believers today to remember the unmerited mercy that God has shown to us. To remember what God has done in our life as we reflect on who we were before Christ and what Jesus did to save us and who we are now. That not only did his mercy deliver us out of that life, but it is his mercy that is carrying us even today, even in the midst of the chaos, even in the midst of all that is happening today, in the midst of the cultural conversations that we are having about racial tensions and, and uh, how to love one another through COVID. We do well to remember God's great and glorious mercy that was shown us in that day, shown to us in ways we don't even fully comprehend and will take eternity for us to even begin to scratch the surface. So our challenge for us today is to be diligent to see the mercy of God towards us today. Even as we reflect back, we want to see what God is doing now so that in the years ahead, 
As we look back on 2020, we're not just stuck and see 2020 as just a year of chaos, a year of pain, a year of poverty, a year of whatever it might be. But God would give us eyes of faith to see how his mercy is carrying us even now. Even as things that we hold dear to us are stripped away entirely, are made entirely complicated to participate in. We want to be able in the years ahead to look back on these days and see God's mercy. To remember what he has done. How he has showed us great mercy. How his justice will prevail. How even where it seems to be lacking that God's mercy is always paired with his justice. See, to be merciful is not to uh, be absent of justice. To leave right undone or to have consequences undealt with. For God to be holy and just, he must unleash the punishment upon someone. Someone must take it. And in this case, it is a lamb. In this case, it is an innocent, harmless lamb with no stake in the game. The lamb becomes a substitute. A substitute sent by God, a system established by God where the imagery is rich. Where we begin to see the, the, the nature of a substitutionary atonement. One that is sent by God. See, so here's the fourth point in our next section. That God sends the substitute. And so read with me now as we're getting closer and closer to the event. We pick up in verse 21. Then Moses called all the elders of Israel and he said to them, Go and select lambs for yourself according to your clans and kill the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that is in the basin and touch the lintel and the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin. None of you shall go out of the door of his house until the morning, for the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, The Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your houses to strike you. You shall observe this right as a statute for you and your sons forever. And when you come to the land that the Lord will give you, as he has promised, you shall keep this service. And when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? You shall say it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover. For he passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians but spared our houses. And the people bowed their heads and worshipped. Then the people of Israel went and did so as the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron. So they did. This is God's word for God's people. See, now the time is drawing near and the time has come. And Moses here gives the elders, those who are the heads of the household, he gives them the green light. It is the day that has been waited for. And now the lambs are slaughtered and the blood is shed and then spread over their doorways. And the people remain safely covered under it. The people of Israel, it says that they obey. They do all that was commanded of them. And then they, what does it say there? In verse 27, they bow down and worship. The same phrase that was used back in Exodus 4. The same phrase, uh, the same response that they had when they heard this great plan of their deliverance. When the bondage was uh, most harsh, when their enslavement was most bitter. They hear the story. Now as it's drawing near, once again, they bow down and worship. 
And yet the imagery is so rich for us, church, in the same way, in the same way that God would send a ram back in Genesis 22, as Abraham brought his son Isaac to be sacrificed, as God would substitute a ram for him there, here these year-old lambs would give their lives so that the firstborns of Israel would live. And years later, hundreds of years later, John the Baptist would say as Jesus uh, comes in to him, Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. As Paul would later tell the church in Corinth that Christ, our Passover Lamb, was sacrificed. And while God's mercy here in the time of the Passover would cover tens, if not hundreds of thousands of firstborns at the Passover, Christ's sacrifice would be the once for all for all who believe. See, God's mercy, the nature of his substitutionary atonement to satisfy his wrath and to show mercy to those who do not deserve it so that he could love them. Christ's death would be the ultimate Passover. Christ's death on the cross in our place would spare us from the just destruction that we deserved for our sin. And yet covered by his blood, we receive Mercy. The lion would become a lamb for the slaughter, the perfect, spotless lamb. Church, do you see it? Do you see how beautiful this is? Isn't his mercy profound? Even as you, as you see it here, as you see God making a way to preserve these people, do you see how it's carrying you through today? Do you see how being covered by Christ's blood has not only delivered you out of sin, but has made you into the man or woman following Christ today? Do you see how beautiful it is? What else could we do but bow and worship? What else could we do but follow him in obedience as we see God coming through yet again? As we see him coming through here and as we witness in our life, God, you've come through there. God, you've come through again. God, you've come through again. And these events are happening exactly as God said and he's holding all of it in his hands because he desires to show mercy and he desires to deliver his people. See, as the events then uh, happen, God, here's the final point, delivers his people and does so exactly as he told them it would happen. Join me in verse 29 now of chapter 12 as we finish this section and we see the actual events. It says this, At midnight the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon and all the firstborn of the livestock. And Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and his, all his servants and all the Egyptians, and there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where someone was not dead. And he summoned Moses and Aaron by night, and he said, Up, go out from among my people, both you and the people of Israel, and go serve the Lord as you have said. Take your flocks and your herds as you have said, and be gone. Bless me also. The Egyptians were urgent with the people to send them out of the land in haste, for they said, We shall all be dead. So the people took their dough before it was leavened, their kneading bowls being bound up in their cloaks on their shoulders. The people of Israel had also done as Moses told them, for they had asked the Egyptians for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. And the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians so that they let them have what they asked. 
Thus they plundered the Egyptians. And the people of Israel journeyed from Ramses to Succoth, about 600,000 men on foot, besides women and children. A mixed multitude also went up with them, and very much livestock, both flocks and herds, and they baked unleavened cakes of the dough that they had brought out of Egypt, for it was not leavened, because they were thrust out of Egypt and could not wait, nor had they prepared any provisions for themselves." The time that the people of Israel lived in Egypt was 430 years. At the end of 430 years, on that very day, all the hosts of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. It was a night of watching by the Lord to bring them out of the land of Egypt. So the same night is a night of watching kept to the Lord by all the people of Israel throughout their generations. This is God's word for God's people. Now the event has finally happened. The devastation has been unleashed. This final blow after the Nile River has been turned to blood and all those pests have been uh, from frogs and gnats and locusts and uh, livestock struck down and boils breaking out and and, uh, hail being rained down upon the earth and three days of darkness and now the firstborn have been struck down. Midnight comes on this fateful night and God moves throughout all of Egypt, striking down those who do not have blood on their doorposts. And you can imagine the cries that came from every home. You know, there's some debate here about who this involves. Is the firstborn just males? Is this a reciprocal in nature? Is to chapter one where uh, Pharaoh only uh, orders the killing of firstborn sons? Or is this uh, both males and females? I think the the word here for firstborn is inclusive. It is a common noun for both male and female. And to see even the scope of what chapter 30 says here, where there was not a house where someone was not dead, begins to show the magnitude, the devastation wrought by the firstborn. To get just kind of a glimpse of this, is anyone, who's a firstborn in here? I am. I'm the firstborn. I have two younger siblings. I mean, just for a moment, I realized like, if God was coming through, struck dead. You can imagine the cries. The same way that the great cries rose out of Israel as their children were being murdered, as they were enslaved bitterly and ruthlessly. And in dramatic vengeance at the right time, God returns this judgment upon Israel. And in this final act, it is just as God said it would happen. Pharaoh sends them away in haste. He summons Moses and Aaron in the night after his own firstborn has died. And he sends them away. And as uh, God had said also, the Egyptians, they, or the Israelites plunder the Egyptians and they pay them to leave. And some two to three million people up and leave. We're told 600,000 men. And so when you add wives and the children and then the mixed multitude, isn't that awesome too? Just a little glimpse here as we see those that feared God, those that were not Israelites by uh, ethnicity, those that see what God is doing by the revelation of his judgments and see that, yes, he is Yahweh and indeed go with them some two to three million people up and leave. Again, get the scope of this. Just imagine if all like San Antonio and the surrounding area, that's about the population there. Just imagine like San Antonio just like up and headed west towards Medina or something. Maybe you drove through San Antonio during COVID when everything was locked down, remember? And wasn't it eerie kind of being around downtown and things? 
I mean, it was eerie just being here at the church when everything was locked down and nobody was driving back and forth on 306. But imagine that many people up and leaving. And after the 430 years after Jacob brought his family of 70 after a famine in the land to Egypt there, they are now headed back to the promised land. God had delivered them by his mercy and made them his people. Maybe you yourself this morning, you're asking of the Lord, how long, Lord? How long is this going to last? How long will this burden, how long will before it is lifted? But let me encourage you today that if it is God's mercy, that it will carry you through it, just as it was God's mercy that delivered you out of it. His mercy is far more reaching than we realize. His mercy is on display in your life, even when you can't see it. His mercy towards you is, is, is uh, evidenced every day as you wake up, as you see the sunrise, as you enjoy the simple pleasures of life. His mercy is on display even when you are feeling the pain of what you have lost. It's God's mercy here. That is on display. We began by saying the purpose of this final judgment is the worldwide proclamation of God's mercy. And you can be sure that even in these days, as we proclaim Christ, His mercy is on display. It is a message that is so important, so profound, so far-reaching, so transformative. It's the only way to be changed, to experience the mercy of God is to know God himself, for it is central to his character. To have received God's mercy is to receive salvation. To be covered by the mercy of God is to be commissioned with the mercy of God. As Jesus said, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. To see mercy in this, in this judgment, to see mercy in these days is to see Christ at work. The lamb, the perfect lamb who was perfect and spotless. The lamb who even on the cross cried out in great agony right before his slaughter. The lamb who shed his blood, who gave his life that the wrath of God might be satisfied, that the wrath of God might pass us by so that we would be delivered from sin and into God's presence, living a life now set free from sin's power, living a transformed life in the power of God's spirit only with the hope of eternity, living the abundant life with him. And church, this is a reason to celebrate. This is a reason that we memorialize. This is something that we celebrate as we think of what Christ did on the cross in an even greater and even farther reaching display of a Passover of what Christ did on the cross. This is what we celebrate. We sing out to our Passover lamb. We remember what the lamb of God did on our behalf as we take things like communion. That God would pre-plan and that God would establish a memorial for us to remember time and time and time again the mercy of God shown to us in the death of Christ.
That's what we do today. That's why we'll even close in just a minute as our worship team will come up, as we bow in prayer and as we worship and sing the song, and then we close as we take communion. And so we who know the mercy of God, would you bow with me? Would you pray with me now? God in heaven, here we are. We're your children covered by your mercy now. We bow down before you, trusting you. We bow down in humble dependence upon you, God. Knowing that apart from you, we can't do anything. And if you hadn't come, Christ, we would still be stuck. We would still be enslaved to our sin. We would still be under the bitter bondage of our sinfulness with no hope, no help. And yet you came, Christ, at the exact right time. You came, Christ, to totally reorient our life, to totally change the way that we think about things, to totally change the way that we process all that is happening in our world. But you didn't merely just come for us. You came so you would be glorified, so that you would receive the worship that is due you. So Jesus, even now as we prepare to Uh, remember, we prepare to think about deeply what you did on the cross, to celebrate that even. We want to worship you as we sing to you as our Lamb of God. It's in Christ's name that we pray.